This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. Podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com Joan Weatherell and Gustavo de Almeida. Thank you both so, so much for donating and being a part of making the show. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com, where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's sleep and wake up more refreshed the next day, and consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. And at $5 a month, you get access to a litany of poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed. Just extra stuff to go to sleep to. Regardless of how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you want to be part of making this show, Go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I'm going to be reading some Agatha Christie, which I always forget that there are some of her works um, in the public domain. And tonight, I'm going to be reading The Secret Adversary. Reading Agatha Christie is, is so funny to me every time because I think it was uh, 
the first play I was in when I was a kid. I played Granny Buttons, some old lady, and it was a uh, train murder mystery, but it was rewritten for kids. And uh, that actually sparked a love for acting that lasted well into high school. I really miss it now, being in theater. But yeah, Granny Buttons definitely peaked in fourth grade. I have Miss Christie to thank for that. Well, anyways, tonight, The Secret Adversary by Agatha Christie. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Chapter 1 The Young Adventures Limited Tommy, Old Thing Tuppence, Old Bean The two young people greeted each other affectionately and momentarily blocked the Dover Street tube exit in doing so. The adjective old was misleading. Their united ages would certainly not have totaled 45. Not seen you for simply centuries, continued the young man. Where are you off to? Come and chew a bun with me. We're getting a bit unpopular here, blocking the gangway, as it were. Let's get out of it. The girl assenting, they started walking down Dover Street towards Piccadilly. Now then, said Tommy, where shall we go? The very faint anxiety which underlay his tone did not escape the astute ears of Miss Prudence Cowley, known to her intimate friends for some mysterious reason as Tuppence. She bounced at once. Tommy, you're stony. Not a bit of it, declared Tommy unconvincingly, rolling in cash. You always were a shocking liar, said Tuppence severely, though... You did once persuade Sister Greenbang that the doctor had ordered you beer as a tonic but forgotten to write it on the chart. Do you remember? Tommy chuckled. I should think I did. Wasn't the old cat in a rage when she found out? Not that she was a bad sort, really, old Mother Greenbang. Good old hospital, de mob, like everything else, I suppose. Tuppence sigh. Yes, you too. Tommy nodded. Two months ago. Gratuity, hinted Tuppence. Spent. Oh, Tommy. No, old thing. Not in a riotous dissipation. No such luck. The cost of living. Ordinary plain or garden living nowadays. I assure you. If you do not know. My dear child, interrupted Tuppence, there is nothing I do not know about the cost of living. Here we are at Lines's, and we will each of us pay for our own. That's it. And Tuppence led the way upstairs. The place was full, and they wandered about looking for a table catching the odds and ends of conversation as they did so. And, do you know, she sat down and cried when I told her she couldn't have the flat after all. It was simply a bargain, my dear, just like the one Mabel Lewis bought from Paris. Funny scraps one does over here, murmured Tommy. I passed two Johnnies in the street today, talking about someone called Jane Finn. Did you ever hear such a name? But at that moment, two elderly ladies rose and collected parcels, and Tuppence deftly ensconced herself 
in one of the vacant seats. Tommy ordered tea and buns. Toppins ordered tea and buttered toast. And mine, the tea comes in separate teapots, she added severely. Tommy sat down opposite her. His bared head revealed a shock of exquisitely slicked back red hair. His face was pleasantly ugly, nondescript, yet unmistakably the face of a gentleman and a sportsman. His brown suit was well cut, but perilously near the end of its tether. They were an essentially modern-looking couple as they sat there. Tubbins had no claim to beauty, but there was character and charm in the elfin lines in her little face, with its determined chin and large, wide-apart gray eyes that looked mistily out from under straight black brows. She wore a small, bright green toque over her black bobbed hair, and her extremely short and rather shabby skirt revealed a pair of uncommonly dainty ankles. Her appearance presented a valiant attempt at smartness. The tea came at last, and Tuppence, rousing herself from a fit of meditation, poured it out. Now then, said Tommy, taking a large bite of a bun, let's get up to date. Remember, I haven't seen you since that time in hospital in 1916. Very well. Tuppence helped herself liberally to buttered toast. The bridge biography of Miss Prudence Cowley, fifth daughter of Archdeacon Cowley of Little Missendale, Suffolk. Miss Cowley left the delights and drudgeries of her home life early in the war and came up to London, where she entered an officer's hospital. First month, washed up 648 plates every day. Second month, promoted to drawing aforesaid plates. Third month, promoted to peeling potatoes. Fourth month, promoted to cutting bread and butter. Fifth month, promoted one floor out to duties of ward maid with mop and pail. Sixth month, promoted to waiting at table. Seventh month, pleasing appearance and nice manners so striking that it promoted to waiting on the sisters. Eight month, slight check in career. Sister Bond ate Sister West Haven's egg. Grand row. Ward made clearly to blame. Inattention in such important matters cannot be too highly censured. Mop and pale again. How the mighty are fallen. Ninth month, promoted to sweeping out wards, where I found a friend of my childhood in Lieutenant Thomas Beresford. Bow, Tommy, whom I had not seen for five long years. The meeting was affecting. Tenth month, reproved my matron for visiting the pictures in company with one of the patients, namely the aforementioned Lieutenant Thomas Beresford. Eleventh and twelfth months, parlor maid duties resumed with entire success. At the end of the year, left hospital in a blaze of glory. After that, the talented Miss Callie drove successfully a trade delivery van, a motor lorry, and a general. The last was the pleasantest. He was quite the young general. What blighter was that? inquired Tommy, perfectly sickening the way those brass hats drove from the war office to the Savoy and from the Savoy to the war office. I've forgotten his name now, confessed Tuppence. To resume, that was in a way the apex of my career. I next entered a government office. We had several very enjoyable tea parties. I had intended to become a land girl, a postwoman, and a bus conductress by way of rounding off my career. 
thought the armistice intervened. I clung to the office with the true limpid touch for many long months. But alas, I was combed out, alas. Since then, I've been looking for a job. Now then, your turn. There's not so much promotion in mind, said Tommy regretfully, and a great deal less variety. I went out to France again, as you know. Then they sent me to Mesopotamia. Then I got wounded for the second time and went into hospital out there. Then I got stuck in Egypt till the armistice happened, kicked my heels there some time longer, and as I told you, finally got demobbed. And for ten long, weary months, I've been job hunting. There aren't any jobs. And if there were, they wouldn't give them to me. What good am I? What do I know about business? Nothing. Tuvins nodded gloomily. What about the colonies? She suggested. Tommy shook his head. I shouldn't like the colonies, and I'm perfectly certain they wouldn't like me. Rich relations? Again, Tommy shook his head. Oh, Tommy, not even a great aunt. I've got an old uncle who's more or less rolling, but he's no good. Why not? Wanted to adopt me once. I refused. I think I remember hearing about it, said Tuppence slowly. You refused because of your mother. Tommy flushed. Yes, it would have been a bit rough on the mater. As you know, that was all she had. Old boy hated her. Wanted to get me away from her. Just a bit of spite. Your mother's dead, isn't she? Said Tuppence gently. Tommy nodded. Tuppence's large gray eyes looked misty. You're a good sort, Tommy. I always knew it. Rah, said Tommy hastily. Well, that's my position. I'm just about desperate. So am I. I've hung out as long as I could. I've touted around. I've answered advertisements. I've tried every mortal blessed thing. I've screwed and saved and pinched, but it's no good. I shall have to go home. Don't you want to? Of course I don't want to. What's the good of being sentimental? Father's a dear. I'm awfully fond of him, but you've no idea how I worry him. He has that delightful early Victorian view that short skirts and smoking are immoral. He can imagine what a thorn in the flesh I am to him. He just heaved a sigh of relief when the war took me on. You see, there are seven of us at home. It's awful. All housework and mother's meetings. I've always been the changeling. I don't want to go back. But, oh, Tommy, what else is there to do? Tommy shook his head sadly. There was a silence, and then Tuppence burst out. Money, money, money. I think about money morning, noon, and night. I dare say it's mercenary of me, but there it is. Same here, agreed Tommy with feeling. I've thought over every imaginable way of getting it too. Continued Tuppence. There are only three. To be left it, to marry it, or to make it. First is ruled out. I haven't got any rich elderly relatives. Any relatives I have are in homes for decayed gentlewomen. I always help old ladies over crossings and pick up parcels for old gentlemen in case they should turn out to be eccentric millionaires but not one of them has ever asked me my name 
and quite a lot never say thank you. There was a pause. Of course, resumed Hubbins, marriage is my best chance. I made up my mind to marry money when I was quite young. Any thinking girl would. I'm not sentimental, you know. She paused. Come now, you can't say I'm sentimental, she added sharply. Certainly not, agreed Tommy hastily. No one would ever think of sentiment in connection with you. That's not very polite, replied Tuppence. But I dare say you mean it all right. Well, there it is. I'm ready and willing, but I never meet any rich men. All the boys I know are about as hard up as I am. What about the general? inquired Tommy. I fancy he keeps a bicycle shop in time of peace, exclaimed Tuppence. No, there it is. Now you can marry a rich girl. I'm like you. I don't know any. That doesn't matter. You can always get to know one. Now, if I see a man in a fur coat come out of the Ritz, I can't rush up to him and say, Look here, you're rich. I'd like to know you. Do you suggest that I do that to a similarly garbed female? Don't be silly. You tread on her foot or pick up her handkerchief or something like that. If she thinks you want to know her, she's flattered and will manage it for you somehow. You overrate my manly charms, murmured Tommy. On the other hand, proceeded Tuppence, my millionaire would probably run for his life. No, marriage is fraught with difficulties. Remains to make money. We've tried that and failed, Tommy reminded her. We've tried all the orthodox ways, yes, but suppose we try the unorthodox. Tommy, let's be adventurers. Certainly, replied Tommy cheerfully. How do we begin? That's the difficulty. If we could make ourselves known, people might hire us to commit crimes for them. Delightful, commented Tommy, especially coming from a clergyman's daughter. The moral guilt, Tuppence pointed out, would be theirs, not mine. You must admit that there's a difference between stealing a diamond necklace for yourself and being hired to steal it. There wouldn't be the least difference if you were caught. Perhaps not, but I shouldn't be caught. I'm so clever. Modesty always was your besetting sin, remarked Tommy. Don't rag. Look here, Tommy, shall we really? Shall we really form a business partnership? Form a company for the stealing of diamond necklaces? That was only an illustration. Let's have a, what do you call it, in bookkeeping? Don't know. Never did any. I have, but I always got mixed up and used to put credit entries on the debit side and vice versa. So they figured me out. Oh, I know. A joint venture. It struck me as such a romantic phrase to come across in the middle of musty old figures. It's got an Elizabethan flavor about it. Makes one think of galleons and doubloons. A joint venture. Trading under the name of the Young Adventurers Limited. Is that your idea, Tuppence? It's all very well to laugh, but I feel there might be something in it. How do you propose to get in touch with your would-be employers? Advertisement, replied Tuppence promptly. Have you got a bit of paper and a pencil? 
Men usually seem to have, just like we have hairpins and powder puffs. Tommy handed over a rather shabby green notebook, and Tuppence began writing busily. Shall we begin? Young officer, twice wounded in the war. Certainly not. Oh, very well, my dear boy, but I can assure you that that sort of thing might touch the heart of an elderly spinster, and she might adopt you, and then there would be no need for you to be a young adventurer at all. I don't want to be adopted. I forgot you had a prejudice against it. I was only ragging you. The papers are full up to the brim with that type of thing. Now listen, how's this? Two young adventurers for hire, willing to do anything, go anywhere, pay must be good. We might as well make that clear from the start. Then we might add, no reasonable offer refused, like flats and furniture. I should think any offer we get in answer to that would be a pretty unreasonable one. Tommy, you're a genius. That's ever so much more chic. No unreasonable offer refused if pay is good. How's that? I shouldn't mention pay again. It looks rather eager. It couldn't look as eager as I feel. But perhaps you're right. Now I'll read it straight through. Two young adventurers for hire, willing to do anything, go anywhere. Pay must be good. No unreasonable offer refused. How would that strike you if you read it? It would strike me as either being a hoax or else written by a lunatic. It's not half so insane as the thing I read this morning, beginning Petunia, and signed Best Boy. She tore out the leaf and handed it to Tommy. There you are. Times, I think. Reply to box so-and-so. I expect it will be about five shillings. Here's half a crown for my share. Tommy was holding the paper thoughtfully. His face burned a deeper red. Shall we really try it? He said at last. Shall we, Tuppence? Just for the fun of the thing. Tommy, you're a sport. I knew you would be. Let's drink to success. She poured some cold dregs of tea into two cups. Here's to our joint venture, and may it prosper. The young adventurers limited, responded Tommy. They put down the cups and laughed rather uncertainly. Tuppence rose. I must return to my palatial suite in the hostel. Perhaps it is time I strolled round to the Ritz. Agreed Tommy with a grin. Where shall we meet and when? Twelve o'clock tomorrow. Piccadilly Tube Station. Will that suit you? My time is my own, replied Mr. Beresford magnificently. So long then. Goodbye, old thing. The two young people went off in opposite directions. Tuppence's hostel was situated in what was charitably called Southern Belgravia for reasons of economy. She did not take a bus. She was halfway across St. James's Park when a man's voice behind her made a start. Excuse me, it said, but may I speak to you for a moment? Chapter 2 Mr. Whittington's Offer 
Tubbins turned sharply, but the words hovering on the tip of her tongue remained unspoken, for the man's appearance and manner did not bear out her first and most natural assumption. She hesitated. As if he read her thoughts, the man said quickly, I can assure you, I mean no disrespect. Tuppence believed him. Although she disliked and distrusted him instinctively, she was inclined to acquit him of the particular motive which she had first attributed to him. She looked him up and down. He was a big man, clean-shaven, with a heavy jowl. His eyes were small and cunning and shifted their glance under her direct gaze. Well, what is it? she asked. The man smiled. I happened to overhear part of your conversation with the young gentleman in Lyons. Well, what of it? Nothing except that I think I may be of some use to you. Another inference forced itself into Tuppence's mind. You followed me here. I took that liberty. And in what way do you think you could be of use to me? The man took a card from his pocket and handed it to her with a bow. Tuppence took it and scrutinized it carefully. It bore the inscription, Mr. Edward Whittington. Below the name were the words, Estonia Glassware Company, and the address of the city office. Mr. Whittington spoke again. If you will call upon me tomorrow morning at eleven o'clock, I will lay the details of my proposition before you. At eleven o'clock, said Tuppence doubtfully. At eleven o'clock. Tuppence made up her mind. Very well, I'll be there. Thank you. Good evening. He raised his hat with a flourish and walked away. Tuppence remained for some minutes gazing after him. Then she gave a curious movement of her shoulders, rather as a terrier shakes himself. The adventures have begun, she murmured to herself. What does he want me to do, I wonder? There's something about you, Mr. Whittington, that I don't like at all. But on the other hand, I'm not the least bit afraid of you. And as I've said before, and shall doubtless say again, little Tuppence can look after herself. Thank you. And with a short, sharp nod of her head, she walked briskly onward. As a result of further meditations, however, she turned aside from the direct route and entered a post office. There she pondered for some moments a telegraph form in her hand. The thought of a possible five shillings spent unnecessarily spurred her to action, and she decided to risk the waste of ninepence. Disdaining the spiky pen, and thick black treacle which a beneficent government had provided, Tuppence drew out Tommy's pencil, where she had retained and wrote rapidly, Don't put an advertisement. We'll explain tomorrow. She addressed it to Tommy at his club, for which in one short month he would have to resign, unless a kindly fortune permitted him to renew his subscription. They may catch him, she murmured. Anyway, it's worth trying. After handing it over the counter, she set out briskly for home, stopping at a baker's to buy three pennyworth of new buns. Later, in her tiny cubicle at the top of the house, she munched buns and reflected on the future. What was the Estonia Glassware Company, and what earthly need could it have for her services? 
a pleasurable thrill of excitement made tuppence tingle. At any rate, the country vicarage had retreated into the background again. The moral held possibilities. It was a long time before Tuppence went to sleep that night, and when at length she did, she dreamed that Mr. Whittington had set her to washing up a pile of Estonia glassware, which bore an unaccountable resemblance to hospital plates. It wanted some five minutes to eleven when Tuppence reached the block of buildings in which the offices of the Estonia Glassware Company were situated. To arrive before the time would look over-eager, so Tuppence decided to walk to the end of the street and back again. She did so. On the stroke of eleven, she plunged into the recesses of the building. The Estonia Glassware Company was on the top floor. There was a lift, but Tuppence chose to walk up. Slightly out of breath, she came to a halt outside the ground glass door with a legend painted across it, Estonia Glassware Company. Tuppence knocked. In response to a voice from within, she turned the handle and walked into a small, rather dirty outer office. A middle-aged clerk got down from a high stool at a desk near the window and came towards her inquiringly. I have an appointment with Mr. Whittington, said Tuppence. Will you come this way, please? He crossed to a partition door with private on it, knocked, and then opened the door and stood aside to let her pass in. Mr. Whittington was seated behind a large desk covered with papers. Tuppence felt her previous judgment confirmed. There was something wrong about Mr. Whittington. The combination of his sleek prosperity and his shifty eye was not attractive. He looked up and nodded. So, you've turned up all right. Let's go. Sit down, will you? Tuppence sat down in the chair facing him. She looked particularly small and demure this morning. She sat there meekly, with downcast eyes, while Mr. Whittington sorted and rustled amongst his papers. Finally, he pushed them away and leaned over the desk. Now, my dear young lady, let us come to business. His large face broadened into a smile. You want work? Well, I have work to offer you. What should you say now? To 100 down and all expenses paid. Mr. Whittington leaned back in his chair and thrust his thumbs into the armholes of his waistcoat. Tubbins eyed him warily. And the nature of the work, she demanded. Nominal, purely nominal. A pleasant trip, that is all. Where to? Mr. Whittington smiled again. Paris. Oh, said Tubbins thoughtfully. To herself, she said. Of course. If father heard that, he would have a fit. But somehow, I don't see Mr. Whittington in the role of the gay deceiver. Yes, continued Whittington. What could be more delightful? To put the clock back a few years, a very few, I am sure, and re-enter one of those charming penaissance de Jules with which Paris abounds. Tuppence interrupted him. To put the clock back a few years, a very few, I am sure, 
and re-enter one of those charming pensionnats de jeune fils which Paris abounds. Tubbins interrupted him. A pensionnat? Exactly. Madame Colombier in the Avenue de Nilly. Tubbins knew the name well. Nothing could have been more select. She had had several American friends there. She was more than ever puzzled. You want me to go to Madame Colombier's? For how long? That depends. Possibly three months. And that is all. There are no other conditions. None, whatever. You would, of course, go in the character of my ward and would hold no communication with your friends. I should have to request absolute secrecy for the time being. By the way, you are English, are you not? Yes. Yet you speak with a slight American accent. My great pal in hospital was a little American girl. I dare say I picked it up from her. I can soon get out of it again. On the contrary, it might be simpler for you to pass as an American. Details about your past life in England might be more difficult to sustain. Yes, I think that would be decidedly better. Then, one moment, Mr. Whittington. You seem to be taking my consent for granted. Whittington looked surprised. Surely you are not thinking of refusing. I can assure you that Madame Colombier is a most high-class and orthodox establishment, and the terms are most liberal. Exactly, said Tuppence. That's just that. The terms are almost too liberal, Mr. Whittington. I cannot see any way in which I can be worth that amount of money to you. No, said Whittington softly. Well, I will tell you. I could doubtless obtain someone else for very much less. What I am willing to pay for is a young lady with sufficient intelligence and presence of mind to sustain her part well, and also one who will have sufficient discretion not to ask too many questions. Tuppence smiled a little. She felt that Whittington had scored. There's another thing. So far, there has been no mention of Mr. Beresford. Where does he come in? Mr. Beresford? My partner, said Tuppence with dignity. You saw us together yesterday. Ah, yes. But I'm afraid we shan't require his services. Then it's all. Tuppence rose. It's both or neither. Sorry. That's how it is. Good morning, Mr. Whittington. Wait a minute. Let us see if something can't be managed. Sit down again, miss. He paused interrogatively. Tuppence's conscience gave her a passing twinge as she remembered the archdeacon. She seized hurriedly on the first name that came into her head. Jane Finn, she said hastily, and then paused open mouth at the effect of those two simple words. All the geniality had faded out of Whittington's face. It was purple with rage, and the veins stood out on his forehead, and behind it all there lurked a sort of incredulous dismay. He leaned forward and hissed savagely. So that's your little game, is it? Tuppence, though utterly taken aback, nevertheless kept her head. She had not the faintest comprehension of his meaning, but she was naturally quick-witted and felt an imperative to keep her end up as she phrased it. Whittington went on. 
been playing with me, have you? All the time? Like a cat and mouse? Knew all the time what I wanted you for, but kept up for the comedy. Is that it, eh? He was cooling down. The red color was ebbing out of his face. He eyed her keenly. Who's been blabbing? Rita? Tuppen shook her head. She was doubtful as to how long she could sustain this illusion, but she realized the importance of not dragging an unknown Rita into it. No, she replied with perfect truth. Rita knows nothing about me. His eyes still bored into her like Gimlet. How much do you know? She shot out. Very little indeed, answered Tuppence, and was pleased to note that Whittington's uneasiness was augmented instead of allayed. To have boasted him that she knew a lot might have raised doubt in his mind. Anyway, Snarl Weddington, you knew enough to come in here and plump out that name. It might be my own name, Tuppence pointed out. It's likely, isn't it? Then there would be two girls with a name like that. Or I might just have hit upon it by chance, continued Tuppence, intoxicated with the success of truthfulness. Mr. Whittington brought his fist down upon the desk with a bang. Quit fooling. How much do you know? And how much do you want? The last five words took Tuppence's fancy mightily, especially after a meager breakfast and a supper of buns the night before. The present part was of the adventures rather than the adventurous order but she did not deny its possibilities. She sat up and smiled with the air of one who has the situation thoroughly well in hand. My dear Mr. Whittington, she said, let us by all means lay our cards upon the table and pray do not be so angry. You heard me say yesterday that I propose to live by my wits. It seems to me I've now proved I have some wits to live by. I admit, I have knowledge of a certain name, but perhaps my knowledge ends there. Yes, and perhaps it doesn't, snarled Whittington. You insist on misjudging me, said Dobbins, and sighed gently. As I said once before, said Whittington, Angrily, quit fooling and come to the point. You can't play innocent with me. You know a great deal more than you're willing to admit. Tuppence paused a moment to admire her own ingenuity and then said softly, I shouldn't like to contradict you, Mr. Whittington. So we come to the usual question. How much? Tuppence was in a dilemma. So far she had fooled Whittington with complete success, but to mention a palpably impossible sum might awaken his suspicions. An idea flashed across her brain. Suppose we say a little something down and a fuller discussion of the matter later. Whittington gave her an ugly glance. Blackmail. Eh. Tubbins smiled sweetly. Oh no. Shall we say payment of services in advance? Whittington grunted. You see, explained Tubbins still sweetly, I'm so very fond of money. You're about the limit. That's what you are, growled Whittington with a sort of unwilling admiration. You took me in all right. Thought you were quite a meek little kid with just enough brains for my purpose. 
life moralized tuppence is full of surprises. All the same, continued Whittington, someone's been talking. You say it isn't Rita, was it? Oh, come in. The clerk followed his discreet knock into the room and laid a paper at his master's elbow. Telephone message just came for you, sir. Whittington snatched it up and read it. A frown gathered on his brow. That'll do, Brown. You can go. The clerk withdrew, closing the door behind him. Whittington turned to Tuppence. Come tomorrow at the same time. I'm busy now. Here's fifty to go on with. He rapidly sorted out some notes and pushed them across the table to Tuppence, and then stood up, obviously impatient for her to go. The girl counted the notes in a businesslike manner, secured them in her handbag, and rose. Good morning. Mr. Whittington, she said politely, at least, au revoir, I should say. Exactly, au revoir. Whittington looked almost genial again, a reversion that aroused in tuppence a faint misgiving. Au revoir, my clever and charming young lady. Tuppence sped lightly down the stairs. A wild elation possessed her. A neighboring clock showed the time to be five minutes to twelve. Let's give Tommy a surprise, murmured Tuppence, and hailed a taxi. A cab drew up outside the tube station. Tommy was just within the entrance. His eyes opened to their fullest extent as he hurried forward to assist Tuppence to alight. She smiled at him affectionately and remarked in a slightly affected voice, Pay the thing, will you, old bean? I've got nothing smaller than a five-pound note. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.